Well, last week we launched a new series, a topical series, where we're talking about temptation. And whenever you think about temptation, I think it's important, we felt like it was important to front load a conversation about the relationship between freedom and the law. Because I think that when you think about temptation, it might lead you to believe that you're talking about some kind of bondage, something that is in some way going to inhibit you. Uh, But that is not the way that the Bible speaks about the nature of the fight against temptation. So any, fight, uh, any discussion on the fight of temptation needs to begin talking about the clarity of the relationship between Christian freedom and the law. I love an image that we get in John Bunyan's famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, anybody here read Pilgrim's Progress or at least parts of it? Yeah, y'all might notice this is kind of a, a big deal in Christian circles. Christ, uh, this work is um, extremely influential. When I was growing up, we actually read it in school, uh, but it was an allegory It is an allegory of the Christian life that tells the story of a man named Christian who begins his journey in the city of destruction with a book in his hand and a burden on his back. And as he looks for answers of what to do to escape, the evangelist sends him on a journey and he he runs out towards this heavenly city that he is sent towards crying out, life, life, eternal life. Now, on the way, he meets a number of characters. Uh, One of them is a guy by the name of Mr. Worldly Wisdom. See how the names kind of signify who they are? And Mr. Worldly Wisdom sends him running after Mr. Legality. Now, that seems kind of interesting, I bet, if you think about it. I mean, you wouldn't, I don't think, necessarily put Mr. Legality with Mr. Worldly Wisdom, right? Mr. Licentiousness with Mr. Let's Keep the Rules. And yet these guys actually have a relationship in some way with one another in such a way that Worldly Wisdom sends him uh, to Mr. Legalist. And as as he draws close to the home of Mr. Legality, he says that he, he has to stop. And the reason that he has to stop is because as he looks in the distance at his home, he says, I I thought that the mountain, there was a mountain that was sort of hanging over, leaning towards this home. He said, I thought that the mountain that stands by his house would have fallen upon my head if I drew near to him. And as he started and stared, he says that the burden on his back that he began with grew heavier. Just think about that. Why would looking at a mountain cause the burden on your back to grow grow heavier? See, I think that he feared coming under the law that Mount Sinai represented for fear that it would fall on his head. And this speaks of Christian's conscience before God. When he went and he looked at the law, he said, if I'm looking for salvation there, I'm worried that it actually would end in death. And as evangelist tells Christian, Mr. Worldly Wisdom... He always goes to the town of morality to go to church. Partly because he savors the doctrine of this world and partly because it saves him from the cross. See, Mr. Worldly Wisdom is much like Mr. Legality and that he is looking everywhere but the cross for salvation. Whether it is the law at Mount Sinai or whether it is some rules that he has kept in this world, it is anywhere and everywhere but the cross of Christ that he is putting and leveraging his hope. See, there is one way to peace with God, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And, as we said last week, even those in Christ, those well acquainted with the grace of God, will face temptation. 
I think that if I asked for a testimony here today, every Christian here has faced temptation. Uh, Many of you would say, yes, already this morning I faced temptation in many ways. Had to pass three Starbucks on the way. I avoided it every time. But we face temptation all over the place. Uh, Last week, we saw that John Owen provided us with a, a working definition of temptation, which I updated to say this, temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that entices and draws the the mind and the the heart of a person away from obedience to God and towards sin in any degree. That is the nature of what temptation is, is a drawing away from obedience to God towards sin. And the Bible says that Satan, the world, other people, our own selves, or even a mixture of all of those can excite us towards sin. And one of the great lies of the flesh is that obedience to God is a a straitjacket. You've probably either heard that or, or even maybe heard a voice in your head say that. And that sin actually provides true freedom. But Paul actually in Galatians is arguing the exact opposite. He is actually arguing that to this mostly Gentile group of churches in Galatia, these churches where uh, Peter seemed to at least be permitting a teaching that said that if people wanted to become Christians, they needed to put their faith in Christ and to be circumcised to become part of the people of God. Paul is speaking to them and he is arguing that this is not true Christianity. It is not bondage, but it is actually true freedom. In fact, in his commentary, F.F. Bruce says that it seems like The distortion of the gospel that some taught in this setting highlighted that Isaac was the son of promise. Remember Isaac, that son of Abraham that ultimately would become the the promised seed. And Gentiles were sons according to the flesh and they needed to be circumcised and to become children of the free mother. So that's the argument that, that if you were a Gentile, then you were actually not children of Isaac. Well, in Galatians 4.21-5.4, to Paul is actually flipping the script and showing us that the true children of the, the free mother are these Gentiles who have put their faith in Christ. So this morning, we're going to see that understanding freedom in Christ is critical to the fight against temptation. Now, understanding our freedom in Christ is critical to the fight against temptation. Now, we're going to basically survey Galatians 4 before we get to Galatians 5, 1 to 4, just so that we can catch ourselves up to speed. Uh, So first, our first point is this, the gospel means utter dependence on Christ. The gospel means utter dependence on Christ, and we see that in Galatians 4. Now, if we want to understand Galatians 5, 1, and the freedom that Paul is speaking of, we need to understand the flow of Galatians 4. Now, if you look there, you'll notice in those first six verses that Paul speaks of a time when these Christians that he's speaking to lived enslaved to what he calls the elementary principles of this world, but whom Christ came and he was born under the law to redeem them out from under the law that they and we might become sons of the living God and heirs to the promises that God made to his people. So so the gospel means, catch this, that we as Christians are sons, not slaves. That's what Paul wants us to see. We are sons, not slaves, because of the gospel. And that is good news. That is the gospel. But in verse 9, Paul then says that he is perplexed. He is perplexed 
that they have turned back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world that once enslaved them. So there's regression that's going on. And the teaching that Paul is so concerned about centers on this distortion of the gospel, which is actually an addition to the gospel. So don't miss this addition and what it is. Here, this addition is subtraction when it comes to the gospel. If you're adding something to the gospel, it's actually subtraction from the gospel. So anytime someone says that you need something in addition to union with Christ to achieve the next level of spirit, spirituality, it's actually regress, not progress. Right? If, if somebody is saying that you need to do this thing plus faith in Christ to be a Christian, to be loved and accepted by God, that is regress, not progress. That's Mr. Worldly Wisdom, not the gospel speaking. So then in verses 21 to 31, Paul flips the script on those who are claiming that the Gentiles need to put their faith in Christ and to be circumcised, observing the legal commands of the law to please God. See, Paul provides an in-your-face allegory. He is, he is, I think, trying to disrupt the crowd with the gospel. And this allegory actually goes back to Abraham's two sons through two women. Uh, one was a slave woman and one was a free woman. Now, Jews would have thought themselves to be the children of the free woman because they were the flesh and blood sons and daughters of the child of promise, Isaac, through his free mother, Sarah. That's what they would have expected in any kind of conversation about a, a free woman and a slave woman, a free child and a slave child. But take note, Paul says that Jews, according to the flesh, who are looking for salvation in Mount Sinai, and the Mosaic law and that old covenant actually represent Hagar in slavery and those that are not accepted by God. So he tells these Jews, you are not accepted by God. You are actually more like the child of Hagar, Ishmael, who is a child who is a slave. Now that's quite the opposite of what these false teachers are saying. But even more, he goes on to say that born-again Gentiles, who is mostly this audience that he is writing to, who have put their faith in Christ, are the true children of Abraham, sons of the free woman, born through promise, citizens of Jerusalem that is above and is free. The fulfillment of Isaiah 54.1's expectation of a barren woman becoming fruitful and her children becoming partakers in a new covenant and those who are actually accepted by God. He, he is saying that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in these Gentile Christians and that they are the true children of God. See, the gospel leads to freedom. Adding anything to the gospel leads to slavery. That's what Paul wants us to see. Now here's the gospel math. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Our salvation is from God. Our righteousness before God, our access to God, and our becoming what God intended us to be is all grounded in our union with Christ, being united with him. And that union comes by grace and through faith in Christ alone. Here's another gospel equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If all you have is Christ, then you have everything that you need. In fact, John Calvin argued uh, this point very similarly. When he was speaking about justification 
before God. He said, really, if you're thinking about being justified before God, having a right standing before him, having peace with God, or if you're talking about what it means to be holy and to become sanctified and to become more holy day by day, both of those things flow out of a grander reality, and that is your union with Christ. And those tributaries, they don't cross. He says, you don't look over from the fact that you are growing in holiness and say, oh, that must be that I should have more confidence that God has saved me because look at the good works that I'm doing. He says, no, I look to my union with Christ for any confidence that I have that I have peace with God. And that's exactly the gospel that Paul here is preaching to the Galatians. I am justified by my faith union with Christ alone. My only hope for sanctification, including fighting temptation, like we're talking about in this series, is only empowered by my faith union with Christ. I don't look to my sanctification as a ground of my confidence that I am saved or that I'm accepted by God. If I do that, I will think that on good days, God loves me. And on bad days, God hates me based on my pitiful efforts. And boy, do I have a lot of bad days where I feel like when I look at the holiness of God, my efforts don't meet the standard. That's not the gospel. See, I look to Christ and Christ alone for confidence to approach God's throne of grace boldly, joyfully, expectantly as a free son or daughter who has the favor of God and as a father who is not inviting me in as a hopeless slave with no rights. Now, as a church, I think it's important for us just to continually be reminded of this. We value a lot of things that we think are really good for the Christian faith and for your Christian walk that are going to be an encouragement to you. We think that uh, baptism, communion, church discipline, spiritual disciplines, church membership are all good things that are meant to drive you towards confidence in Christ alone. But none of these should be the ground of any of our confidence before God. And none of these save or sanctify us ultimately. Only Christ can do that. So the question that we should be asking every morning is, how am I united with Christ by faith? Trusting that that is the only ground of hope or acceptance before him that I have. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, as we begin, uh, we want to encourage you, as we encourage people, to commit yourself to Christ. In fact, in our church, we encourage people to commit themselves to church membership so that they can live out the, the New Testament Christianity that we read about in texts like these. And one of the beautiful things that I love when I actually talk to people who want to come to Christ or join the church is I, I sit down and I want to ask them and I ask each person to explain the gospel to me and usually in 60 seconds or less. Usually people get intimidated by the 60 seconds or less. It's probably because of the stop, stopwatch that I pull out and I make a big show of it. No, we don't do that. But we want to make sure that, that people understand the gospel. And here's why this is important. I have heard Mr. Worldly Wisdom's voice come into my office in all kinds of forms. I've heard Mr. Worldly Wisdom's voice come from folks who are coming out of Mormonism or Catholicism or atheism. And it all sounds very similar and all of those, there is this discussion as they share the good news of the gospel. And, and as they begin to unfold their understanding of what the gospel is, those who misunderstand it, it all sounds the same. It's that at the end of the day, you need to make sure that you've done more good than bad. Because, hey, I'm basically a good person and I'm not bad like those other sinners out there. 
Well, friend, if that is the picture of Christianity that you have, that you think that we think that we are people that are kind of the best of humanity, that do more good than bad, that are basically good to the core, that's not the gospel that we put our heart and our place, our trust in. See, according to Paul, that kind of religion is dead religion. See, temptation will seem exciting to you if you believe that God just wants you to, be, to do more good than evil at the end of the day. If that's it, like you can tinker with temptation because you know that like at the end of the day, I'm just trying to make sure that I basically eke out a little bit more good than evil. Temptation will seem exciting if you think that you have the ability to manage temptation in that way. That you can do it in your own strength, under your own power. Jesus, I think, will seem boring, insignificant, and excessive if you don't sense that it is only by grace and through faith that you are saved and that not of yourselves, but a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast in his own efforts. See, worldly wisdom runs towards self-righteousness through your own works. And it is powerless before temptation. But don't miss this. God has made us for so much more so much more than resting in our own feeble efforts. God has made us for much more than that. I love what Irenaeus says here. He says, the glory of God is man fully alive. That is what the glory of God is. It is man fully alive. That is what God wants for us. It is not for us to be bound and to be less than what we've been made for. It is that we might fully be what we've been made for. And that is only in the glory of God, in the pursuit of the glory of God, that we find it. And we see just that in Galatians 5, 1 to 4, where we want to focus our efforts this morning. Notice first, our second point, main point, is this. The gospel means a relentless pursuit of freedom in Christ. In verses 5, 1 to 4. Now, I see two realities in 5, 1 to 4 that we want to spend our, our time on this morning. The first here. Paul sums up and applies that allegory of Jerusalem below and Jerusalem above by saying this in Galatians 5.1. And look there with me again. Here's what he says. After that whole discussion about the slave woman and the free woman, the child of promise and the child who is a slave, he says this in verse 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, the question that you have to ask here is what exactly does he mean by freedom? And so we're going to look at this in a couple of ways. The first is this. Notice that he shows standing firm in the freedom of Christ is the point. It's the point. Standing firm in this freedom is is. Paul's point, he said this is the point of Christianity and, and the new birth and the new covenant. It is, it is that you stand in this freedom. Now the language here communicates that Christ set us free for the purpose of freedom. And freedom is the point, but what is this freedom? You know, when I was in college, uh, I had a lot of friends uh, who came from teetotaling Baptist backgrounds. And when they read Galatians 5.1, it was like the first time they'd ever read it, and they got really excited, and they said, well, I, I think that what this means, an application of this, is that I can drink beer freely. And so they would drink a lot as an application of Galatians 5.1. Uh, more recently, I, I've had a number of Christians who have said that 
the, the application of this has to do with like the way that they can use legalized marijuana for recreational purposes. Like I think that's what freedom in Christ looks like according to this text. Of course, I would say that verse 13 provides a quick warning about the way that we should read this. He says that freedom should not be used as an opportunity for the flesh. So that's not what he's talking about. But what freedom is Paul actually talking about here? Well, take note, it's critical to Paul. He says, stand firm in this freedom. So it's important that we do this. And that's the position, uh, that standing firm of a military warrior who's holding the line in battle. So the blood of Christ was shed that we might be free and fight to stay free. It's an important posture that we are fighting for the freedom that has been given to us. I think Martin Luther nails what this freedom is in his commentary. There he writes this, Not freedom given us by the emperor, but that which Christ has made us free, freedom from God's everlasting wrath. And where is this done? In the conscience. Our freedom stays there and goes no further, for Christ has made us free, not civilly, not physically, but divinely. That is to say that we are made free in such a way that our our conscience is free and quiet, not fearing God's future wrath. This is true and inestimable freedom. That if we compare its majesty with the other sorts, those others are like one drop of water compared with the whole sea. Who can describe our state when we are assured in the heart that God is neither is neither or neither will be angry with us, but will forever be a merciful and loving Father to us for Christ's sake. He goes on to write that we are set free in our conscience from the law, from sin, from death, the power of the devil, hell, and so on, as the wrath of God cannot frighten us, since Christ has delivered us from it, so the law, sin, and death cannot accuse and condemn us. Now don't miss this. The the fight against temptation begins with a, a conscience that stands firm in the freedom of the gospel on the conscience level. Now the conscience is a unique characteristic that God has created us with. It's a, a unique characteristic that is unique to humanity. We all have the capacity for a conscience. It reflects the moral capacity of God. It's our consciences of, of what we believe is right and wrong. And when Adam sinned, the fall affected that conscience as well. So while Luther is right in saying to go against your conscience is neither safe nor right, your conscience is not God, and it needs to hear you preaching the gospel to it daily, educating it in the school of Christ. So we all have a conscience. All of our consciences are are fallen in some ways. And we need to be constantly preaching the gospel to our consciences so that they are shaped like Christ. As Mark Dever says, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. So we should never violate our consciences. We need to educate them so that they don't enslave us. And the New Testament describes uh, that conscience in a number of ways. Uh, Sometimes we see the conscience spoken of uh, negatively. A conscience can be weak. So 1 Corinthians 8, 7 
There's a, there's a conversation about the eating of meat that is sacrificed to idols. And you'll remember that there is a, a person who is weak and a person who is strong. And uh, there, there's a weak Christian. And Christians with weak consciences struggle with eating meats that are sacrificed to idols. And seeing others do so because their consciences have not been trained well with the gospel. In fact, John MacArthur says a weak conscience is one that is hypersensitive. It is overactive and about issues that are not sins. That's what a weak conscience is. It it sees things that are wrong that the Bible doesn't say are wrong. That's the conscience that says don't taste or touch things that God has not excluded. It's to create unbiblical rules about external things that is often easily wounded. See, these Christians fret over things that those mature in the gospel don't sweat. It's important not to encourage people to violate weak consciences. Let me me just be clear. You don't want to violate your weak conscience or encourage others to do so because it could eventually lead to a hardening of that conscience, which is a gift from God. But instead, what we want to do is we want to speak into that conscience the gospel and help it to understand the gospel better. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you have over here a a weak conscience, you can also move towards a seared conscience, like those who are led away from faith in 1 Timothy 4.2. There it says that there are those with seared consciences that were led away from faith through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, did you notice the connection between the weak conscience and the seared conscience. Did you see the similarities there? Notice that both weak and seared consciences fall under and promote rules that are not informed by the gospel. See, the gospel tells Peter that he can eat bacon. Man, that's a good religion if you ask me. But even more, it signals that those far from God suffering and wrestling with consciences that are, that are weak and desperate can find peace with God. That's what... Peter is being told, as he is told that he can eat bacon, it's that Gentiles can come to faith in Christ. Now, positively, a conscience can be strong, like we read about in Romans 14, where again, what are you doing with food sacrificed to idols? And you'll notice that in Romans uh, 14, those who have a strong conscience have a conscience that's theologically trained. And they are able to eat all kinds of foods. They don't discern days like others do, and they they drink wine. They feel free to do that. So the weak conscience limits himself to vegetables, valuing some days over others, and it refrains from wine. A conscience can also be good in Acts 23.1, and it can be cleansed in Hebrews 9.9, but the conscience is a significant part of what makes us human. So a Christian conscience can positively be weak or seared, and negatively Uh, negatively weak or seared and positively either good or strong. And we shouldn't violate our consciences, but we shouldn't treat our consciences as God either. Just quick facts on the conscience. God's word always has authority over our consciences. So when you feel like something is wrong, but God's word doesn't say so clearly, your conscience might be weak on that issue. Now, it doesn't mean that you're weak on every issue. But you could need to preach the gospel to yourself on that particular issue to bring it in line with the truth of the gospel. And here's why this matters when it comes to temptation. 
You know, we're focusing on those circumstances that we find ourselves in where we are excited to sin against God by Satan, by the world, by other men in the world, our own selves, and sometimes a mixture of these things. And a free conscience that is saturated with the gospel is the best defense against temptation's offense. See, a weak conscience can lead us into relying on our own works because we don't fully understand what it means to be free in Christ. Living as though we are prevented from things that we are not is actually not effulgent with the gospel. Keeping and adding rules to the gospel, it, it does not show off the power of the gospel. It may feel safe, but it actually hides the power of the gospel because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. See, that, that's not the true God-glorifying humanity that God has called us to individually and collectively. We have been called to be a free people that revel in the freedom of the gospel. And I think that we think sometimes that weak consciences and legalism or adding rules to salvation is actually safer than following Mr. Worldly Wisdom, but it's actually the same thing. It is looking for salvation and hope in another place than Christ alone. Now, strong consciences could be an occasion for sin as well. Either they can bully weaker consciences, not being humble and gracious and gentle and kind with them. But notice after reminding them in verse 13 of this, for you were called to freedom, brothers, he reminds them, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, if, if you sense that you are, are strong in your freedom with Christ, don't grow lazy and standing firm in that freedom. In other words, a healthy conscience educated by the gospel will lead to love if you are rightly following it out. But as our consciences drift from the heavenly Jerusalem towards the earthly Jerusalem, we become cannibals, according to Paul. Some of the kids were like, he said cannibals. Is he going to talk about people eating people? This is a great Sunday. Not good, kids. Not good. Never good to eat other people. You can write that down in your notebook and show mom and dad and talk about it at lunch later. But that's exactly what verse 15 says. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, if a local church who is one anothering, loving one another in the way that we have been commanded to by Christ himself, if it drifts from the glorious riches of Christ that have been bestowed on us as adopted children of God, nobody's safe. If we drift from that gospel, God's children are not safe. Everyone turns on one another, disunity breaks out, and that can happen over sin issues, that can happen over non-sin issues. Uh, I remember uh, my grandmother uh, went to a church uh, for decades, uh, she recently died, loved the Lord, I'm grateful for that as with Jesus right now, but she experienced a church split one time over a thing that was actually a good thing, communion. Uh, so they, they had this uh, fight in the church, and it went this way. Um, they had a common cup that they were taking communion out of. Everybody was drinking out of the same cup. Uh, had some millennials who came in and messed it up. Started saying, you know what, I'm, I'm worried about germs and stuff. Heard that guy's got like hoof and mouth disease. I don't want us to drink from the same cup. And so it started a fight, and people started fighting over like, well, I, I think that we should take from individual cups, not like the collected cup. And other people were like, well, that's not unity like we read about in the New Testament. And so th they began like this fight. And finally they said, well, we'll just have communion in different ways. And we won't do it the same. And like we'll kind of look ugly at each other across the aisle as you're taking communion. Because that's what it's about. 
See, that's not a sin issue, but it became one. It caused division. And people turned on one another. They had a, a conscience-level conviction that you either need to drink out of the cup or you need to drink out of individual cups. Or one person said, you know, like, I don't even think it's a, an issue either way, and so I, I just prefer the little cup, so I'll go with the little cup. But it became an issue of division in the body because of the way the consciences were working out, and it wasn't a sin thing that started it. It was a battle of consciences, and they turned on each other. So our fight for our conscience is really about our daily joy in Christ and the unity that we enjoy as a local church. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I believe this is a beautiful promise that God offers you if you struggle with a restless conscience that tells you that you are never good enough for others or for God. I just heard a young lady share a testimony with me about that recently. It was just this last couple of weeks. She sat in a chair and just told me about how she spent years just thinking that she was not good enough for God and that she feared that if she did try to come to God by faith that he wouldn't take her because she didn't feel good enough for God. And maybe that's you. I want you to know that Jesus is the only one who can tell you with certainty that your sins are forgiven and you have peace with God. And Jesus came to tell you just that. See, those who confess their sins before God and turn in faith to Jesus, who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, he now lives to intercede for you with God, and you can know that God is for you in Christ. You just put your faith in Christ today. That can be you. And Hebrews 9.14 can be true about you. There it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what the gospel does. It frees our consciences that we might be purified and serve God joyfully. You know, Luther's words could be true for you today. Again, Luther writes this in his commentary, where he says it's easier to speak of freedom in Christ than to believe it. Have you all ever felt that? It's easier to talk about freedom in Christ than to actually believe it and trust it and put your life into it. This is what he goes on to say. If we could apprehend it, the the reality of this freedom in Christ, if we could apprehend it with a sure and steadfast faith, then no rage or terror of the world, the law, sin, death, or the devil could be so great that it would not be swallowed up just as a little drop of water is swallowed up into the sea. See, Christian freedom swallows up all of these and replaces them, he says, with righteousness, peace, and everlasting life. Love that image. Those things that seem so great in temptation that maybe you're feeling today. He says, guess what? If we really, rightly, and fully had a sure and steadfast faith of the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ it would be dropped up and turned into something that looked like a drop of water falling into the ocean. That's the power that comes to us if we really truly believe and are convicted by the freedom that we have in Christ and has been brought to us. But there's a second important point to close uh, this with, and that's this. B, standing firm in freedom is a serious command. Standing firm in freedom is a a serious command. Look with me again at verses 2 to 4. Galatians 5, 2 to 4. Here's what he says. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. These are scary and haunting words. 
But don't miss this. We can be tempted to think that legalism and self-righteousness are more holy sin struggles and that they are less worldly than living it up in Vegas, right? But Paul says seeking your hope and joy at Sinai or Vegas both lead away from Christ. Now, I know you're looking like for Vegas in the text. It's not in the text. It's a metaphor. If you are seeking your hope in licentiousness, in in living wildly in sin, or if you are putting your confidence in Sinai, Paul is saying it is the same kind of thing. Now, after the service, I know someone is going to say that I said that if you are free in Christ, you can go to Vegas and let loose. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply acknowledging that what Paul says here is, If you are seeking to please God or win acceptance from Him through your own works, Sinai will fall on your head. See, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Here it's confidence in circumcision. That that sign that was given to Abraham of the covenant, of a covenant that was everlasting that he was going to make, that he was going to fulfill through him and his children. And he says, that covenant pointed to the greater covenant that has been brought to us by grace through Christ and his death. We have a new and better covenant. And so if you're in that covenant, then you need to be looking to Christ and the law of Christ that he's going to speak about later in his letter. And we have all kinds of other things that we can trust before God today other than circumcision. All kinds of things. Things like, I'm not as bad as other people. I've never really sinned big. I'm pretty good compared to others. Everybody likes me. So God must like me if if everybody else kind of likes me. Or I I keep the rules of the community and I fall in line and I don't stick out. It seems like I just fit here and I'm, I'm okay and I'm good. I go to church every Sunday. I'm baptized I take communion each week. I, I teach theology. My, my parents are Christians. I'm a member of my local church. There are all kinds of things that I, I dream about doing that God's word says I shouldn't do, so I don't, and I'm miserable for Jesus, so he has to let me in because I earned it. Or my conscience just feels kind of okay. I feel fine. I must be fine. And Paul would say that none of these things prove a gospel-shaped conscience that clings to freedom in Christ with both hands. See, an enslaved conscience actually points to a self-righteousness that believes that you can please God and win acceptance through self-effort. But Paul says the problem is that God doesn't grade on a curve like my Hebrew professor did. I'm so glad he graded on a curve. I failed until I made an A. It was a failing grade, and yet the curve was very steep. And sometimes I think that we just think that God grades in that way. But, but notice that that is not the way that Paul says God, who is infinitely holy and just and righteous, grades in verse 3. Did you see that? It's not the same kind of curved grading scale. He says if you fail at one point, you fail. I don't know anybody in this room who would say that I feel very confident coming before God at the end of the day and saying that I have not failed at at least one point. That many of us would say, I would be happy to be able to say after today that I had not, say, had not failed at one point, but I would never say that because that would be a lie and I would fail at least two points, right? But verse 4 adds, not only have you failed if you failed at one point, if you are seeking and trusting in Sinai, 
in that covenant other than the new covenant that is in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 4 adds that you are severed from Christ. That you have, he says, fallen away from grace. I think he could have stopped at severed from Christ, and I'm terrified. But then he just says, and I'm going to add, and fallen away from grace. Just in case you missed the point. I don't miss this. Don't miss this freedom in Christ. It is a huge deal for the Christian and everyday fight against temptation. God has called us as individual Christians and as a collective church to be as fully human as God has created us. And that means that we need to listen to and obey the voice of the Good Shepherd, resisting all of their claims of truth that seek to bind our consciences. So Christianity isn't a straitjacket. It's the unleashing of humanity to be altogether glorious in the way that God created us. Don't you want that? Don't you want to want that? Well, let me go on to just show a, a few ways that we should be thinking about how we can unleash the freedom of the gospel upon our consciences. I've got five quick ways, and you can dream up others this afternoon, but here are five quick ones. The first is you need to be intimate with the gospel. You need to understand the beauty of the gospel. You need to rehearse the gospel to yourselves daily. And when I speak of the gospel, I'm not only talking about God, man, Christ response, the reality that God is our our good creator king who has authority over us, that we are sinners who need grace that only comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we are called to repent and believe that gospel. That is true, but I believe in the that you need to be focused, we need to be focused daily on the multifaceted brilliance of the gospel. The different aspects and truths and realities that have come to us in the gospel. Truths like the fact that God sent his son who died and paid the penalty of our sin so that he could say it is finished so that we can trust that we are accepted before God, that we are forgiven. Uh, What about the beauty of the gospel in the sense that Jesus is our great high priest who sits enthroned next to the Heavenly Father right now forever making intercession for you and me so that as we sin even today, Christ is there for us. He is speaking on your behalf in Christ. He is calling the Father to once again shed mercy on you, not because of your greatness or your perfection, but because of His perfection. The gospel is full of beauty and brilliance that we ought to spend the rest of our lives unfolding and tackling and applying to our consciences and our hearts so that we don't go around feeling guilty and sad when we have not thought enough about the brilliance of the gospel and what it means for us. The gospel ought to warm our hearts towards God. It ought to warm our hearts towards others. It should not make us sad. It should make us happy for God. It should be a great deterrent against sin if we really understand and look to the gospel. Second, we need to fill our mind and heart daily with God's word. We need to fill our mind and heart daily with God's word as we meditate on who Christ is, who is for you. Paul says to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. And of course, we know who is above. It is Christ who is seated next to the Father in heaven, who is even now interceding for us. Our minds need to be with Christ where Christ is. That's a great deterrent to temptation, fighting temptation. Third, know that there are probably things that you think are right that are wrong. 
There are probably things that you think are wrong that are right. In other words, there needs to be a certain sense of humility in us as we look at our consciences. And we need to be constantly looking to whatever it is that we are seeing as binding us in light of what the Word of God actually says. In other words, we want to treat Christ's voice in the Scriptures as authoritative over our moral compass. Some of you here today are Dallas Cowboys fans. And I think that's very wrong. But I haven't been able to find a clear biblical reasons why. I can sort of connect some verses that make me feel really good about telling you how wrong you are. So there's that. Number four. When something feels wrong, look to God's word to see if the Bible says it is. If not, pray that God would conform your conscience to this world, to his word. In other words, if you feel like something's wrong, look to God's word to see what the Bible says. And if it's not wrong, pray that God would conform your conscience to his word so that your heart would beat with Christ, that you would have the mind of Christ, that you would have evaluations that are Christ-centered, gospel-saturated. Fifth, check your heart if you were chewing on others. You know, sometimes you can sort of trace the trail of breadcrumbs back from your life to the way that you're actually believing about God and others. In other words, one of the, the, the initial indicators sometimes in my life that I need to like go spend some serious time with Jesus and his word and prayer. Sometimes maybe I just need to get a nap and eat a Snickers bar, right? But, but sometimes I start seeing the way that I'm treating others and I'll realize really quickly, I need to run back to Christ. I need to reevaluate where I'm at. And so, Check your heart and see if you are chewing on others, if you're gossiping or you're speaking in a way that doesn't evidence fruits of the Spirit. Uh, it, It could be that you too need a nap or a Snickers bar, or it may be that you're not trusting the gospel. The gospel propels us to love others sacrificially as Christ loved us, according to to verses 13 and 14 here. So a community that is divided, uh, according to Paul, has lost sight of the freedom of the gospel. We've been enslaved again to elementary principles of this world. But a united community that loves freely declares the power of the gospel to all who look on, even to the very realms of spiritual beings, rulers, and authorities. That is the display that is made by a church, the united under the gospel. Isn't that the church that you want to be? Isn't that the church you want to be? It's the church I want to be. Let's pray.